Welcome to episode 111 of the Professor and the Hack. Uh, I'm a cricket nut, and I've got to say 111 is supposed to be bad luck, isn't it? It's supposed to do with Lord Nelson. Don't say that, because as we're talking, well, I guess Travis Head, as we're talking, is, is resuming not out at 112. So by the time you're listening, you'll know whether he's added to that or not and whether Hugh's jinxed him. I hope I haven't jinxed him. <laughs> it got past the Nelson anyway, but there you go. Let's hope we can get through all of this. Whether it was uh, the memory of uh, Horatio Nelson or some other obstacle that emerged, we're not going to have Gladys Berejiklian running at the next election in the seat of Warringah. Zali Stegel breathes a sigh of relief. What was that all about, Hugh? I mean, the Prime Minister was the one more than anyone fueling this speculation, along with his other MPs. The media, of course, if they were the chooks being fed, you know, a la... Sir Joe Bielke-Peterson style, uh, it happened, it worked. But then all of a sudden he backs away and then she announces she's not doing it anyway. What, what was that all for in your view? Oh, well, I do wonder whether, because it came from Scott Morrison, whether she was ever more than sort of lukewarm on it and then maybe, you know, in the face of lots of people telling her how great she is and what a great idea it would be, she might have turned ahead a little bit. But it never came from her as far as anyone can determine. Mm. So she was sort of put in the position of being pushed up to the front. And she's decided not to go there. But it was always, to my mind, completely daft because of the dangers that with the ICAC report possibly coming out between now and the next election and potentially holding negatives for her, that um, it just puts the whole issue of ethics back front and centre when Scott Morrison is busily trying to make it all about the economy. But they've done that now anyway. That's what I find so fascinating about it. I mean, at the one level, I mean, there, there are so many different ways that you can interpret his decision to start pushing her ahead of her ultimately backing out and him preempting that in the last couple of days. I mean, at one level, was he trying to heap public pressure on her? At another level, was he, and these are not mutually exclusive, at another level, was he testing the public mood to get a sense of whether the public, despite ICAC, was, was in favour? Did he want to see how big the backlash was or wasn't? Uh, did he want to just feed the chooks to give the media a distraction point because of other things going on, perhaps? Quite possibly. Uh, was it some combination of all of that? But at the end of the day, Hugh, uh, like I think it was always ridiculous, the idea that she could run when you hadn't yet had any findings from ICAC to know what the cloud was or wasn't hanging over her head and what the outcome of that was, irrespective of whether you think ICAC can be a little unfair. And I'm not buying into that by saying that. I'm just making the point that, that the uncertainty of it, which you've already said, was always a real barrier and a real problem, particularly were those findings to come out between now and the next election. But it, it also speaks to Scott Morrison, doesn't it? Because you know he's a win-at-any-cost kind of guy, and I think he made an assessment, rightly or wrongly, maybe they had some research to back this up, that notwithstanding all of the uncertainty around ICAC and the damage done vis-a-vis -vis that whole saga, you know, they weren't going to win Warringah without it. They won't now win Warringah without it. There's no chance with, with a normal candidate. Mike Baird would be the only other person who could do it, and he's not running. I think he just thought, you know what, so what? Win at any cost. Uh, she's our best chance. Now, I'm not even sure I agree with that politically because of those distraction points that we're talking about, putting ethics front and centre, the possibility of something coming out between now and the election. The, the sheer distraction of it as an issue, was that really worth it, even if she could deliver him the one seat of Warringah. It could cost him other seats. Yeah, my, so here's my take on it. One is that he is desperate for every seat, so that would be a factor in his thinking. Mm. My assessment of, of Morrison is that he's an instinctive player, as you say, win at every costs, but also understands shaping impressions that the public have. And the Berejiklian candidacy, candidacy that he was running more than she was 
had two advantages for him in areas that he is weak. It makes him a man ardently supporting the cause of a woman in politics. Ah, yes. And that, just for its own sake, has value to him. Even if she does, even if she says, no, sorry, Scott, don't want to do it. He's, well, you know, I've tried so hard to get, you know, these, these things. It doesn't always work out, but gee, I'm right there in the, in the corner for women getting into politics and, and getting into federal politics. You know, they've always got a friend in me, bearing in mind what's happened over the course of the last year. That's a message he'll have no, you know, he wants to see out there. And the other thing, which I think is maybe a little bit more subtle, but I think also feeds into his mind, is that he's in the act of breaking a solemn promise, and that is having a Commonwealth Integrity Commission. He promised it the last election. It's gone absolutely nowhere. Extraordinary, really. Just extraordinary, frankly. A- absolutely extraordinary. And so given that there are all these other ethical questions that, uh, that are stuck to him, like lint you know, to a piece of sticky tape, it doesn't matter whether he lied to Macron, whether he released text messages that, he, that was a breach of diplomatic norms, all the other stuff, the sports rorts, the, the car park rorts, every other damn thing that's going on. He's got a whole bunch of ethical problems and Labour is picking up that people want some sort of body at a Commonwealth level that is essentially going to be a proper policeman blowing the whistle on, on all of this. Now, every time he talks about Gladys, he attaches to that argument that Gladys has been done down by an, quote, awful process, an abusive process, which is the New South Wales uh, Independent Commission Against Corruption. He never minded it when they were going after Obeds or Ian McDonald's and the Labour side, but it's now a totally abusive process, a kangaroo court, as he called it in Parliament. Mm. And so that justifies him not delivering one. So Gladys serves him those two, in my view, business. He, he's seen as promoting a woman. And he's giving himself a reason to walk away from a promise about a, a, um, an integrity commission. You know, that'd be my guess of the way in which he operates. In any event, it's gone now because he's not doing it. Yeah, well, he's certainly not. I imagine that uh, you're right about all of that. I, I think, that, and that's why it's so multifaceted, isn't it? Like there are lots of different things uh, that are feeding in to his thought processes around this, but they're also a little bit on the run, aren't they, Hugh? Because these are, they, they sound and feel a little bit desperate to me. You know, he knows that we're counting down to the election. He's behind in the polls and he's got lots of balls in the air that he's trying to juggle uh, and deal with at the same time as shift the focus to the economy, which is his strength to do what he did to Bill Shorten, to Anthony Albanese. And yes, he's done it before. And yes, there's a sort of quiet confidence amongst a lot of liberals that he'll be able to do it again when you talk to them. But I think that in his mind, there's nervousness there. I think he knows that three years in, uh, in terms of serving a full term going to an election and trying to win a scare campaign against Labor, trying to seek a fourth term is a lot harder this time round than it was for him last time against Bill Shorten when Shorten was more personally unpopular than Anthony Albanese, when he didn't have baggage himself as Prime Minister with the style of campaign he created, even though the government did with the leadership kerfuffle between Abbott and Turnbull before moving to him. There's a lot more governmental baggage this time around. And while I think, you know, 12 months ago, we would have thought this election's in the bag because of the pandemic and because of how Australia's done relatively well, the vaccine rollout hadn't been botched yet, deaths were low. Yes, the vaccine rollout has fixed since then, but boy, it's a more contested ground now. And I, I, I sniff some desperation. Doesn't mean he's going to lose, but I sniff that he's flailing around a bit here. 
because there is so much that he has to control and contain to be able to get to where he needs to get to to win, keeping in mind that he has to win seats to retain majority government. Yes, I do wonder whether the next few months won't work in his favour. And if you look at it, we're in a La Nina year, which means there's zero prospect of serious bushfires, as we saw a couple of years ago. So that sort of threat and stress and reminder of action on climate change is not likely to be a factor. We're likely to win the cricket at the rate we're going. The country is feeling a little bit better. They're going out and about. We're, we're beating the palms. There's no fires. And one of the curious things about Morrison, as we've watched his performance, is that he has his worst times when he, he's in parliament. Mm. Now, theoretically, parliament should be the moment where you stand up there as, as a political leader, as a prime minister, and you, you, know, you bestride the landscape. This is your soapbox. You know, institutionally, it's your soapbox. But it's always been tough for him. He gets kicked around. He had members crossing floors left and right. It was all kind of nuts for him last time. Now, he's almost got no more parliamentary time before the, the next election. And the only bit that he has got really is dealing with the budget, mm. which is on his own terms. So I kind of think you have a benign weather environment. It could be floods, of course. You know, people on holiday in a more positive mood as we come out of the pandemic, possibly looking to some wage rises. You know, people have, have got houses thinking, well, we did quite well out of the last couple of years. And he can go out and campaign as he does more effectively on the ground than we've seen Albanese do it, I wouldn't be at all surprised if we come out of the summer with his numbers looking a little better. Would that be reasonable? Yeah, I think that's reasonable, particularly particularly that summer period uh, I, I agree with you about. You know, the cricket, no fires, people relaxed and comfortable, assuming the borders remain open by and large, and the, the next variant doesn't cause some sort of kerfuffle that, that gets in the road of all of that, I, I, I do tend to agree. He does have a parliamentary fortnight in February that he'll then have to confront off the back of that. But those parliamentary fortnights, even though he doesn't do well in parliament, are easier when he's come off the back of a good period than when he's come off the back of a bad period. So if the summer is good for him, then it makes the return of parliament easier for him as well, particularly if the polls reflect that good summer period. It heaps the pressure back on Labor, for example. But also, uh, that's the sort of, if you like, a pre-budget period, isn't it? We know that if he goes full term to May, the budget is slated for late March now, according to the parliamentary calendar that's been released. That means that sittings ahead of that in February as the only fortnight, I believe, if memory serves me correctly, ahead of that budget period will be quite pre-budget in focus as well. So whether it's looking back to a positive summer or forward to an economic debate and the budget, both of them suit Scott Morrison. And, he, and if the first set of polls out in the new year do show some sort of uplift for him, well, then he has the momentum, doesn't he? All of a sudden, 2022 looks very different from the way that he's ended 2021 with a momentum shift over the summer. That's the upside for him. Uh, the downside, though, is that he does go into this period with that hope, no doubt, with a lot of balls in the air. You know, And, and it's whether they are merely distraction points. And I think I've described them before as sort of goat track pathways for victory for Labor. Is that all they remain and therefore they don't amount to much collectively? Or does one of them really open up a bit? That's the risk for, for Scott Morrison. One of the things that I've picked up is a sense that Anthony Albanese, in fact, Labor in general, they've been rolling out policies, well-received policies on, on emissions targets, for example, business and industry supporting the Labor plan, which itself is interesting. Albo is out there. He's got a new tailor. His suits are looking good. He's bought some new glasses. He's starting to look more prime ministerial. He admits himself that He's not a star, if you like, performer. But I wonder 
what Labour strike it strikes me, Labour really misses and needs at this moment is a kind of a, a vaudevillian, someone who can make the case, can get in, can be on message, but be good sport as he does it or she does it. And I'm just wondering where that comes from because it's becoming evident that Albo doesn't have it. Funny guy, though, he can be on a personal one-to-one level, quite witty. It doesn't seem to convert through the organs of, of the media to the mass audience that he needs to reach. You know, do they have one? Have they become a little dull and proper and procedural in the Labour Party? Because where is a, a Hawke, a Keating, a character, the sort of role that John Prescott served for the, the Labour Party in Britain or Barnaby Joyce went on his good days, serves for the coalition in Australia? Do they need one? Who would it be? I, I can't think of one. I mean, the, the deputies, you know, not, not in a formal sense, but the, the lieutenants uh, around Anthony Albanese are sort of leadership contenders themselves, aren't they, rather than loyal deputies who offer a different version of flair from the leader. I mean, if you, if you think about them, even someone like the formal deputy, Richard Miles, has leadership ambitions as the most senior Victorian now that Bill Shorten's out of the road, but then you've still got Bill Shorten lurking around. But then, you know, the shadow treasurer, Jim Chalmers, he doesn't fit that bill in. He's a future leader. Tanya Plibersek sees herself as a future leader as well, no doubt about that. She may well be the leader after the next election if they don't win. Chris Bowen, you know, he's taken the lead a bit more now on climate change with the portfolio that he shifted into from health uh, relatively recently, and that's been a centrepiece of their policy announcements in the last few weeks. But he also sees himself as a future leader. He just has to rehabilitate himself after the last election where he ran unsuccessfully as shadow treasurer. So none of them, and Tony Burke, you know, he sees himself as a future leader, even though I doubt he'll ever get there as manager of opposition business, but he still doesn't fulfil that criteria that you're talking about. I wonder if that's a modern politics thing to some extent. You know, yes, you've got a Barnaby Joyce who's a bit of an outlier, but there has been a reduction, I think, in that slightly maverick MP being near the centre of political leadership and power. You've still got plenty of them, but they're mavericks who are, if anything, a bit distasteful in the ranks of the backbench as opposed to having that kind of more colourful persona and personality you know, as a, as a, as a loyal deputy or lieutenant. Yeah, I don't think they need to be mavericks. I think they just have to be witty. <laughs> they know how, how to come up with a riposte. I guess I think being witty has become maverick <laughs> uh, these days, whereas <laughs> because of a sanitising effect of mainstream politicians, and it's become a little bit you know, black or white, hasn't it? You're either completely sanitised or you're just a disgrace <laughs> sitting on the back bench, you know, sort of George Christensen style, uh, saying whatever you're saying with the Prime Minister holding his breath, waiting for you to retire. We lament the loss of wit. Let's take a quick break. Uh, <laughs> more in just a moment. Welcome back. This is episode 111 of The Professor and the Hack. As we roll on into summer, I hope your year has, uh, is ending better than uh, at various times it has seemed. We travel with you is all I can say. Now, a few things going on. Let, let's talk about Barnaby. He's caught COVID. He's sitting in Washington, all the rest of it. He's well, or at least not seriously, seriously ill. Well-ish, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is a good thing. All we can do there is wish him well. You know, there's nothing much more to it than that. Of course. The media royal commission that's been called for by a Senate inquiry, this is the one that was pushed by Kevin Rudd with the help of over half a million signatures on a petition seeking an inquiry. That's now delivered a 304-page report saying we need a royal commission or an inquiry with all the powers of a royal commission 
intermediate, quite plainly aimed at uh, Rupert Murdoch and his various organs. The committee chair was uh, Sarah Hanson-Young from the Greens. The conclusions were vehemently opposed by Andrew Bragg, the deputy chair from the Liberal Party. There's not going to be a Royal Commission into media in Australia, is there? Well, no, because uh, if, if I was reading this correctly on social media earlier this morning, it's been opposed by Labor and the Coalition. So that that's the end of it, really, uh, irrespective of how many hundreds of thousands of signatures have signed up and however many, presumably, millions of other Australians agree but haven't been taken the activist route of, of signing the petition. The Greens can push it, Sarah Hanson-Young can push it all she likes. If, if both major parties aren't on board, not only is it not happening any time now uh, or soon, but it's not happening any time far either. Sometimes in these situations you have divergence between the major parties, which simply means that it becomes relevant to the election outcome, whether you're going to have one of these royal commissions out the other side of it. But Labor seems to be sending the message that they're not interested either, uh, even though, of course, it's a former Labor Prime Minister and a former Liberal Prime Minister, we should add, in, uh, in Malcolm Turnbull, both Rudd and Turnbull pushing for this. So what does that say? Those who see Murdoch's control everywhere in Australian life will say, well, that's absolutely proof that he now owns the major political strands. Or is it just simply a fight that they don't want to have? Or perhaps they don't think there's, a, there's actually a, a battle sufficient to bother fighting at all? Look, I'm, I'm comfortable with a Royal Commission into the media and, and they've done the f- terms of reference so that it's not a Royal Commission into the Murdoch media. I mean, I should disclose here, I write a column, uh, a weekly column for the Australian newspaper, which of course is, is part of News Limited. But it's been cleverly framed, if you like, and I think appropriately framed so that it's not targeting one organisation, even though we all know that, you know, that's, that, that is the kind of the primary target of, of Rudd and Turnbull, they've framed it so that it's an inquiry into the media writ large and would it would just presumably, therefore, understandably focus pretty heavily on the Murdoch empire as well. But uh, by framing it as broadly as that, I, I, I have no problem with it. I would have had a problem with it if it had been targeting one private organisation. I think that's inappropriate, but by all means, target the media writ large. And if it so happens that one private organisation is under the gun more than others, well, then that's the way it goes because it's an independent royal commission. So I'm not uncomfortable about it. What does it say? I suspect it says that Labor just doesn't want the distraction this side of the election. Maybe there is some fear that if one side of politics is supporting this and the other side is not, that that could turn the media against them. I'm not sure it works that way. (laughs) No no one's ever told me what to, to say or write or think, or if they've tried, good luck. But I could imagine that being a think. It's a fight we don't need, so therefore don't worry about it. And I guess you had the Finkelstein review uh, during the Labor years not that long ago, even though most of it wasn't implemented. You know, it's a nice, thick report there that highlights some of the issues. But on the counter-argument, Hugh, I'm sure you'd agree with this, that also raises as many questions as it does answers, doesn't it? Because we didn't see reform in large part out the other side of that. There has been more concentration, not less, in the media. I understand that from a commercial perspective, why it's been necessary for survival for some media organisations, but by the same token, it raises more questions about the level of control and influence that the mainstream media can have when it becomes more concentrated. We are one of the most concentrated markets in the world. There's a lot of questions there. Now, does it warrant a Royal Commission costing hundreds of millions of dollars? Well, clearly a lot of Australians think it does, but both major parties, at least at this stage, don't think it does. But we know this, Hugh, (laughs) uh, when enough Australians and they are voters want something, it's only a matter of time before one, if not both, major parties end up going down that path, potentially, because after all, they chase votes. 
Yeah. Look, I mean, I have to declare that I've never written a column for the Murdoch press, and I don't see the point in a royal commission or the powers of royal commission fundamentally when it's being aimed at, at the Murdoch empires. I, I, but for the very reasons that you point out, it spends a lot of money. In the end, you'll wind up with a bunch of recommendations, most of which probably won't be enacted because that's what we saw with Finkelstein. It becomes a bit of a waste of time. And I do think that there are plenty of ways in which people do express their disdain for the Murdoch empire. Their criticisms, in many cases, are justified. Sometimes I think they're a little bit insane. You quite often see on Twitter, for example, you know, there'll be something turns up from the Financial Review, for example, and people go, oh, the Murdochs are doing this. And, the and you, go, you go, mate, it's not the Murdochs. <laughs> mm. and, and we get that as a Channel 10. You know, we're, we're owned by CBS wholly owned by Viacom CBS and uh, and yet quite often you know you'll see social media attacks on us because because we're part of the Murdoch empire as well because there's a misunderstanding really that while it's a concentrated field it's not a monopoly of the Murdochs and also the Murdoch argument goes is that there's a lot of free speech around communication happening across social media and that has to be taken into account the key thing is you'd spend a lot of money and nothing would happen to it so i think rudd and Turnbull's point has probably been made. Let, let's leave Murdoch for a second. You made mention of the Labour Party front bench around Albanese and how many of them are aspirants for the leadership. We've seen someone who was an act, well, two people who were aspirants for the leadership of the Liberal Party, uh, Greg Hunt and Christian Porter, head to the Greenfields outside politics. But um, quite clearly, if Morrison loses, and even potentially if he wins, the next leader of the Liberal Party will be either Peter Dutton or Josh Frydenberg. Both are somewhat, well, they're sitting on at-risk seats at the moment. Mm. So there's that outside possibility that if Morrison loses badly, it may well be that one or both of these men are eliminated by the voters. But how do you see that playing? Dutton or Frydenberg after Morrison? Yeah, yeah, really good question. Uh, in defeat, I think, assuming that both hold on, in defeat, I think Peter Dutton probably has the better chance, which is not to say that he beats Josh Frydenberg, but I think his chances of beating Josh Frydenberg are greater in defeat than they are in victory. Because in victory, uh, even if we face the unlikely prospect of Scott Morrison deciding to retire on his own terms in the next term of parliament, I, I actually think that that is a distinct possibility personally as, as a prediction because I think he would like to go out a winner and, and, and all the rest of it. But you have to say mathematically it's unlikely because, you know, Menzies is the only modern leader to do so and he did it after 17 years in the prime ministership rather than, you know, seven or less, which is what it would be comfortably for, for Scott Morrison were that to happen. But if he did go uh, at a time of his own choosing during the next term, I think it becomes easier for Josh Frydenberg to be the natural successor because he is the Liberal deputy. He will keep working on things and it would be more akin to a steady transition uh, because he's the treasurer and the deputy and would be all but endorsed by Morrison on the way out the door because there's no love lost between Morrison and Dutton. However, it's not out of the realms of possibility that Dutton gets it because he does have a lot more support on that right flank of the Liberals than I think a lot of people in the public quite realise or at least more than they realised when he got so close to both beating Turnbull and then almost beating Morrison when they had their leadership showdowns back when ahead of the last election. In defeat, though, I think as much as it's a poison chalice to take over the leadership as a first-term opposition leader, you know, no first-term opposition leader has won an election since, I think, 1931 or something aghast like that. 
But I think Dutton has a better chance there, partly because I think that the party would want a fighter and they would see him as more of a fighter and more aggressive stylistically in opposition than Josh Frydenberg, but also because it would remove the authority of the leader to have some sort of tacit handing on uh, of position and the deputy and treasurership positions that Josh Frydenberg holds hold more weight uh, when you're a winner than when you're a loser going into opposition, I think. Now, that's not to suggest that Dutton does win in that scenario, but I think his chances are higher there than they are if it's a, if it's a more seamless handover in government. What do you think? Well, it's an, it's an enormous, you know, again, we go to almost Shakespearean images of, of the human character because you have in Josh Frydenberg a, a very likable man who cares to be seen as likable. Uh, who networks very well, you know, who's bright, intelligent, who's done a pretty good job of the, of the role of treasurer in an extraordinary time, obviously blowing up budgets, but in the name of, of keeping people employed, he doesn't have a spotless record, too much went out on JobKeeper, all that kind of stuff. But you get a guy who's essentially a centrist, comes from Victoria, conscious that if he's going to lose his seat, it's going to be to forces, you know, significantly to the left of him. And so he's you know, he's not going to take any positions that are extreme or, or hard right or anything. Against that, you have um, the former police officer, Peter Dutton, who is an intimidating force. Mm. He can be, as people say, quite charming personally. So I think part of his support within the, co- well, within the Liberal Party is that he, you know, he does have friends, but he is publicly, his public persona is that of an intimidating figure. And I think if John Faulkner, the the Labour Party figure of, of many years standing always argued that you should vote for the leader who's most likely to win you the next election. And I kind of feel that if they were to lose, the person who is most likely to take down an Albanese government is not Josh Frydenberg. You, they would go for Peter Dutton because there'd be a view that Abbott-like, he has the capacity to get up in the parliament to intimidate, to, to simplify messages, to, to be like a cat leaping on any weakening of national security, of borders, and all those other things that, that they use and they work well. And I suspect that Labour would rather have Josh Frydenberg across, across the, the chamber than, than Peter Dutton, because Dutton will make it very uncomfortable for them. And I think all of that would mean that Dutton is, is I suspect, more likely to get that job. That would be my guess of it. Of course, mm, interesting. Morrison could win in a landslide, and in 30 years' time... As the retired professor and the retired hack, as we gaze back over the uh, over the you know the, the twenty years in office of Scott Morrison, when he defeated all comers on his own benches in the foreign side, so none of this comes into play. But the more likely reality is it will come down to these two men, and we saw a little bit of that when Albanese came up with his sit-down buffet moment with Dutton, and there was real feeling in that when Albanese was telling Dutton to sit down. I got a sense that it prefigured the future that both Albanese and Dutton both perceive themselves as being intimate combatants for the role of prime minister at some time down the track. They, they, they've got each other's measure, they see each other, and they know that in some post-Morrison world, one or both of those men is likely to be prime minister. That's my feel. Yeah, I think that's true. Mm. Yeah, interesting. All of that will doubtless be resolved in, uh, in times to come. And now, before I go, I should mention that uh, we're going to be on camera, PVO, you and I. We are. For a Prof and Hack video special to wrap up the year. And you'll be able to see that uh, Professor and the Hack video special on the Channel 10 YouTube channel. 
But for now, that's us. Good to chat, PVO. Talk again soon. Likewise, Hugh. Cheers, Matt. You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.